Hello, everyone, and welcome to Salem Happenings, a show digging into the issues that you're all talking about around the city. We're joined by former city art planner Deborah Greel, Salem's Gazette reporter Will Dowd, and retired Salem State Academic Administrator Gwen Rosemond. Subbing in for Salem State Professor Rebecca Haynes, we also have the all-powerful John Andrews from the Creative Collective. I'm Dustin Luca with the Salem News, and as always, we're joined behind the scenes by SATV producer Alan Hanscom. Normally, we dive into our first topic of the show at this point, but we're going to hit pause for a moment just to reflect on something. This show for us started to begin the new year 12 months ago, and the show we have now, the space we occupy and the body of work we've created at the end of the year, isn't even close to what we imagined in January. And that's something that every person in Salem, we think, can say about just the sheer unpredictability of the year. Life didn't have a script to tell us what happens next. It didn't have a volume dial or a mute button, and there's no DVR to pause or skip over the painful parts. This year has been a roller coaster, and while on this ride, we've all lost a lot along the way. Some of our jobs, some of us lost jobs, others, friends and colleagues. A lot of people have lost life partners, siblings, parents, fragments of their soul that are never going to come back. And there's one thing that unites all of us in all this, that it's really, really easy for us to recognize the things that went wrong this year. But it's harder to find the good things we found along the way, and it can be done. We've all done a lot of growing. We've been solving problems that we couldn't have possibly imagined, and we're doing it at a rate that would have seemed heroic to our past selves in 2019. So across the city, we saw the same resilience in the drive to survive in everybody. Every business went through some sort of transformation in this. Artists were put to work in absolutely beautiful ways. And I think we've all gained a valuable skill in not taking things for granted. I mean, Salem's got an outside dining scene now. Who didn't see that coming? So our first remote episode in the spring focused very heavily on the good work that's going on in the city. And you're going to hear echoes of that in conversation in today's episode, I'm sure. But let's not forget where we are to end 2020 and how much power we hold to dust ourselves off in 2021. After all, the Spanish flu of 1918 ushered in the roaring 20s. And I didn't know if anybody else wanted to add anything to that. Well said, Dustin. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So on that note, uh, the theme of this episode is taking a look back at the year and some of the biggest things that we've gained. Uh, easily mobilization, uh, we think, was the biggest thing that we've gained. Arts are absolutely bumping right now. Businesses have been innovators, and even city government has found a way to move things forward with virtually nobody at City Hall. So who wants to kick this one off? I mean, it's this has been a very successful year, given all the problems. I mean, well, I can start off. Go ahead, Gwen. Go ahead. Well, nope. I was just going to oh, say, yeah. um, it really is striking to me how, how Salem has dealt with this. And it becomes really noticeable and not to, you know, not, not to pan anyone, but when one looks at one's surrounding communities, nearby communities, other areas in the state, when one looks across the country, to, to have been, to have really taken charge insofar as possible of what this pandemic has meant to all of us. And it's been a horrible scene and we all know that. And yet there have been so many times when I have simply said, I'm so glad I live in Salem. I'm so glad Salem has the leadership to, to manage and to oversee this, what otherwise would be a horrible, more mm -hmm. horrible, experience. So I'm really glad that Salem is where I landed and that Salem has the foresight and the ability to work with 
again, what otherwise would be even more of a horrendous disaster than it is. Yeah, I from the from very, 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 very early on um, with the advent of the uh, Economic Development Task Force and just conversations that started so much earlier. Other than Merrimack Valley, I didn't really hear anyone talking as a group as soon as we had. And Merrimack Valley had such a strong connection because of the Columbia gas crisis. So like they had a plan in place where we didn't. Um, but we popped right into action and having all the right people in the right room to figure out how we could, you know, the Economic Development Task Force was only one task force and an overarching COVID task force thing. Um, and it was just super impressive. And we, we, I felt like we did our best to try to stay ahead of everything, which when the, the game changes pretty much daily, it's really hard to keep ahead of it. But the flexibility, the malleability um, of not only the economic task force, but the small businesses in general, um, just really, there was this constant underlying theme of like, yeah, this is pretty bad, but, but, but there's hope and there's people making progress and there's people pivoting in successful ways and changing in successful ways. And, you know, even in, in which we were all, you know, completely taken aback by even in middle of the summer. I mean, there's lines at stores, there's, there's reservations at restaurants, you know, weekends being sold out. So, you know, it, it, I'm hoping that when we come out of the other side of this, you know, from what I saw through that whole stretch, all of that work, the back and forth, the, the, the working, the arguing, the fighting, the mask awareness, the, all of it, um, we, we come out of this with roughly the same amount of businesses that we started with. And, you know, I, I'm hearing a lot of people taking pauses in the winter, but I'm not hearing a lot of people closing in the winter. And that's, that's, that's a testament to, I think, what has gotten us to this point. I think let, let's do a slightly deeper dive into that, though. I mean, I think part of the reason um, that this was successful is when we want to talk about leadership. But um, we have uh, John Anders and the creative team in our city. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where else the city had such a connection to somebody who was mm -hmm. already on the ground, <laughs> who had already mm -hmm. built up Agreed. these kinds of um, opportunities had already built up a connection with uh, particularly the creative economy folks, the artists, uh, the designers, the restaurants. So I think we were a bit of ahead of the curve, I think, John, because of your team and being able to work with uh, the mayor and having those relationships was huge. I mean, it's, it's that it's, it's, for me, it's just that intersection of, you know, having an awareness of and having communication one-on-one -on -one with these business owners. I mean, they're all humans, they're all people and they're all part of our communities. And they, a lot of times just want to be heard and they want people to understand their plights and their struggles. You know, one of the things that's really complicated about Salem is we breed individuality. And we love that these businesses are unique. We love that these businesses have their own models and their own plans. Well, trying to represent a bunch of people that do things very differently is not very easy. So yeah. you got to show up. You got to show up. You got to, you still got to be boots on the ground. You got to go into their stores. You got to ask them in their place, like, what's happening? How are you doing? How is it going? 
what are you running into? I mean, I heard things that I never would have imagined as challenges this year just by listening. And then you address, you know, when we started the outdoor dining project, there was a lot of talk about closing streets down and activating parks. And that's not what the businesses wanted. So as soon as we started asking the questions, we started getting the responses. And one of the things that I felt, because I worked in some other communities on the outdoor dining as well, one of the things that I think we did way better than anyone else is we asked. And so the buy-in, the buy-in from the small businesses and the restaurants, because we were asking the questions, not telling them Mm -hmm. what they wanted, Mm -hmm. was a lot, it was just so much stronger. Um, you know, and my, the world that I typically represent with the creative side of things, to Deb's point, we all think outside the box about everything almost to a fault. So pivoting and changing and moving and shaking and reinventing businesses and coming up with new strategies, like that's kind of what we do anyways. So like to see that community be able to really show off how being flexible and creative and unique can be. I mean, those that figured out ways to change their business every two, three weeks, every month, every six weeks, those are the ones that are like, yeah, I'm just going to take a break, but I'll be back in the spring and we're going to be just fine. There, there was, there's a lot of fans. Um, so, so if you weren't a person who was, you know, an artist bringing that to the conversation, you are someone like me that could say, I'm going to support my favorite shops downtown. I'm going to support the restaurants that I would either be at. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure and your stay local shopping was great. I, I, I entered, I, I'd say 90%, at least 90% of my gifts were purchased downtown um, because we have built up this community of support. So we all had a piece to play. We could all do something like Duke mm-hmm. is when we're saying we could all support something. You just did it in like this big, wonderful way that you could go out and take selfies and stay safe. But um, well, I, and I part of part of why you know part of why I haven't you keep you keep driving me to that. But part of the reason that I'm not saying art specifically right. is because these are still all small businesses. Mm-hmm. You know the the mural behind me in my backdrop. You know Meg is a surface designer, and you know she's a small business, and she lives right in the buildings behind her mural, and she pays taxes, and she goes to the shanty, and she. I I'm just the changing of the narrative. One of the things that I'm hoping comes out of all of this is when we hit the other side of the pandemic, the creative community, these small businesses that you might not think of as small businesses, just because she doesn't have a storefront doesn't mean that she's not part of the community and not a small business like can we come out of this and be like oh there's hundreds and thousands of small businesses all around us that we're not even engaging with and to watch all of the local businesses that I know of embrace that you know the ones that do have storefronts that can now offer all of their services online. All of the ones that have partnered with these local vendors and makers that had no opportunities to do outdoor markets, they're bringing their products indoors and selling them that way. You know, Moody Interiors worked with two or three different October vendors that couldn't vend and they were like over the moon happy with the sales because they were, and so it's kind of win-win, but again, it's just that like, it's changing that dialogue of like, yes, they're arts-based, but they're small businesses and they really made a difference 
what would we be like through this crisis if it wasn't for public art, mask making, you know, online shopping, all like, where would we be with all that if we didn't have books, if we didn't have Netflix, if we didn't have cinema, if we didn't have online performances, if we, where would we all be with all of this? It would be in a really much worse place. And that yeah. community has been hit so hard as far as they're not getting paid. There's absolutely no work for performers right now. And so, you know, I posted something earlier today and I hope people remember this. When we come out of this in the summer and the fall, remember that those people cannot be paid in exposure. Those people come to the table with, with a budget, come to the table with some money because they've given you all of this for free, but they also need to pay their rent and their taxes and be part of the economy as well. Yeah. And just one of the reasons why I'm glad we're able to include you actually in this episode was because, you know, a lot of the work you've done hasn't just been in Salem. It's also been in Beverly. It's been in Peabody. Mm -hmm. It's been all over the North Shore. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of speak to how well Salem is doing because you're seeing a lot less vacancy in Salem as you are in other places. Like the North Shore Mall, I know right now is freaking out because they don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, I'm actually heading up there after this to talk to them because of that exact reason. Um, you know, they've, the stores are changing, the big boxes are changing, the whole vibe is changing. And, you know, it's this flip-flop of, we were a mall-based society that went into a Main Street-based society, then back into a mall-based society, and now we're heading back into the Main Street-based society again. Um, and there's something in the middle there. Um, there's something in the middle there and there's something that we we can work on and I we started to do that last year and I'm hoping that we get back to it and it was you know establishing the fact that the mall isn't the bad guy we want to support our small locals but can you imagine removing the tax revenues out of all of those stores and in the real estate like we don't want to lose that and they have open spaces available they have outdoor spaces they have giant parking lots they have food courts they have spaces that we can do stuff in but like covid i don't even know what's going to come out of the other side of it as far as the malls go, I'm hoping to have some more discussions because I mean, the other thing is, is the creative community, what do they need? They need space. What do malls have space? Mm -hmm. So how do we work a better deal there and find some sort of happy balance point? You know, I'm not one of those people that are like the mall's the bad guy. Don't ever go to a big box. Well, you know what? I got to go to Best Buy for stuff. Mm -hmm. I just do. There's just certain things that I'm not going to get downtown. And I'd rather go somewhere where I know the employees than go to Amazon. So there's that, there's that thing too. I mean, that tax base helps us. Yeah. And before we move on to the next topic, I just, just kind of circle this all up. Um, one of the things that we can all talk about is the reason why things are going so well in Salem is because you have a board of health that listens to all of the different you know, people, you have doctors that are speaking and you could disagree with some of the changes that are happening. We have a really high profile meeting on Wednesday that could actually cause the shutdown of every restaurant in the city. But, you know, at the same time, I don't think there's anybody at the end of the year who's like, you know, the, the board of health or the city destroyed this or damaged that. It seems like the, the board of health has done an amazing amount of work this year. I yeah. think that they really have, and it has not, as you as you allude to, it has not necessarily been popular work. Uh, in fact, it's been 
unpopular, I think, for learning. And it is sort of inconceivable to me how one can have a board of health that is doing the job that it's hired or, or elected or chosen to do in this context of this pandemic and people object to that. And I understand all the things that play into that in terms of the economy and people's livelihoods, but I hate this expression, in these unprecedented times, mm -hmm. uh, the need to defer to those who know what they're doing and that would be the Board of Health. Yeah, they don't make I, those decisions lightly. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I was going, I was going through um, for our top most read stories of the year at the Salem Gazette. And all of them were like, you know, the economic task force, the mask wearing inside businesses, outside dining, the governor coming to Salem to praise us for all of our first mm -hmm. of, you know, of its kind, mm -hmm. kind of, um, you know, work that we've been doing, like the mask wearing and like, you know, making people go outside and eat and whatnot. And I just think that they've been very innovative, as Dustin said in the beginning. Um, and I just wanted to ask, John, do you know um, if we're going to be keeping outside dining? Has there been discussions about like what we're going to keep? So uh, let me let me twenty one. Yeah, let me go with that. Like even when COVID goes away. One one thing to just say really quick to to back up Gwen's point. If you think about the job that you all do, if you had to quadruple your job with the same amount of staff and the same amount of money, how would that feel? Because that's basically what Board of Health just did. Mm -hmm. Board of Health was thrown on the front line of every single major decision in the city. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is unpre talk about unprecedented. That's unprecedented. And people don't really think it's that way. They're like, it's affecting my business. Why are they doing this to us? Why are they mm -hmm. they're not? They're trying to keep people alive. They keep track of the, the hospitals. They know what the hospital occupancies are. They talk to, you know, North Shore Medical Center daily. Like they, there's no, no, no one on the board of health wants to ruin your business. Like I get it. It's hard. I had to cancel every single major event that we did for the whole year. I had to say no to outdoor markets when they were doing outdoor markets in Marblehead and doing outdoor events right around us. And that's okay. Because you know what? I have to trust that the board of health knows what they're talking about. I absolutely have to. That is their job. That is what they do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To layer that into Will's question, like, yes, outdoor dining will return. We are starting to have that discussion about what that could look like now, how, how expansive is it going to go, but also understand that every single department that gets affected by that has not had their budgets increased. Think about all of the Jersey barriers that DPW had to move in store. Think about all of the outdoor decks that they had to disassemble to put away. And the, the, you know, so all of this stuff, it's, it's a bigger discussion, but there was a, there was a, like an extremely positive whole thing that happened around outdoor dining. It will happen again. At what level and what extreme we're working on it now. Um, I'm, I'm working with the city again to work on a spring 2021 rollout. I've already met with DPW. I've already met with Parks and Rec, uh, sorry, parking. I've already met with the city solicitor. We're talking about licensing. We're talking about there's a whole licensing issue. If the ABCC pushes back to the way it was before the pandemic, it's a 12 to 16 week process to get an extension of premise to be able to do outdoor dining. The summer's over at that point. 
So there's a state level thing. There's federal stuff. There's local. Mm-hmm. not as easy as just throwing a couple of picnic benches outside. Everybody has to work together. When we were doing outdoor dining, we had weekly meetings with planning, licensing, city solicitor, DPW, parking. Like it was great. The art was great. The Jersey barriers were great, but the process behind it, people really need to respect how, how many players had to come together to support these small businesses. It looked like it just showed up overnight. I can guarantee you it did not just show up overnight. And then on the flip side to have DPW freaking out, trying to get Jersey barriers out of the way before the first snow hit. Like there's a whole, I will give Ray Joden and DPW more credit. They absolutely crushed it. And again, another department of the city that quadrupled their work. They also put up all the mask signs. They also put up the lawn signs at all the parks. They also like, it's just insane, but it worked really well because everybody came together as much as possible. You know, a lot of all that stuff that you just mentioned was duplicate, like others, like, you know, I cover more than just Salem. I cover Swampscott, I cover Marblehead at times, and I cover, you know, just other communities. And just to see all of the other ones, like, follow the lead of Salem, like, it just literally, it wasn't, I mean, we really were entrepreneurial in the way we responded Uh to uh, the COVID situation and keeping our businesses open. But you know what, if you, um, I am on the licensing board, so you're right, John, there has to be ABCC, you know, but hopefully the way, first of all, I know that we're all in favor of doing that on the board itself. But one of the things that uh, I think you're talking about is there wasn't a no. When you have everyone in the group, if you have, you know, the planning, I'm not saying it was easy. I'm saying, but if, if a mayor says, yeah, this is too much, or a town manager says, no, this is too much. Or you have the Board of Health maybe run by somebody else that didn't do as effective of a job. Everybody not only did their job, but everybody was ready to say yes, as opposed to being that one. Hey, let's face it. You know, I've worked in city government. I know that one or two people can be the one, the catalyst that says, Uh yeah, it's too much. We're not going to do this. That didn't happen here. You know, everybody was, what can we do? That is really good leadership from all of you. And those are the best types of people. (laughs) (laughs) What? Uh, Those are the best types of people, in my opinion, the yes people. Yeah, the yes people. The yes people, yeah. The people who make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Make it happen. It's, it's, We'll figure out a way. Get this done. (laughs) Speaking of um, making it happen, so obviously another major event that took place this year is Salem actually returning to the BBD Essex Museum. And this is something that we've actually been hearing about for a while, just with... Mm -hmm the change in leadership over there, what was happening with the Phillips Library for a while. And this year, uh, we had the first Witch Trials exhibit since the merger in 1992, a new Salem Stories installation with rotating pieces of Salem culture, handling it frequently, and even more. Um, Salem Appenings actually had an opportunity to to go in and check out the Trials exhibit. We're gonna show you a few minutes of that here. Um, It's part of our general turn towards the community, Um, Brian, started a year and a half ago in July of 2019. I came, I arrived about a month before he did. And overall, we're we're interested in exploring the local history, Salem history, and our permanent collections, which we think have been a little bit neglected um, over the last several Uh, decades. So that's when it started. 
and uh, it's, it happened shortly after COVID. I, I think you and I, because I, That's I right. we went on a tour together, and uh, you said that it, it kind of came about after that. I, I'm just a sort of, well, what was the inspiration for that behind, you know, just, just, I mean, you guys spent sort of the COVID months putting this together, you could say, right? Right, and it was a challenging set of circumstances. We had limited access to our collections, and we all had to adjust to a different way of working as well. So all of our exhibition meetings were virtual. Um, there wasn't an opportunity to kind of sit around the table and, and throw ideas at each other in the same way that, that it has it like gone in the past. Right? Brainstorming together and things like that. Right, so. and so we had very limited time actually in the collection center, kind of looking at documents and choosing what we wanted to do. And um, Dean really had the idea to organize the exhibition around the objects that we had and then therefore the people that had owned or were associated with those objects and that became a real um, effective way to organize the exhibition it made the document selection a little bit easier and it enabled us to tell the stories of the real people who were yeah so so i think we could the the documents that are on display are from the sale of the original salem witch trials documents that haven't been displayed in what some 30 years 30 years yeah. 1992 there was an exhibition called days of judgment here and that was the last time when any of this material was was on view. And so. why, uh, before we go inside, uh, why can't they be on display so much? Well, what could happen uh, with them? Just, yeah. The documents in particular yeah. are very fragile. You know, they're over 300 years old, right? Um, and they're very light sensitive. So any, um, they really can only be safely on view for six months to a year. And after that, we need to put them away. Once, once ink or, or, or print fades, that you can't get it back. There's, there's no way to to conserve that or bring it back. So we have to be very, very careful about how much exposure these stuff. The full feature will be on our Facebook page if you want to dig deeper. So now I'll send it back to you folks. Uh, what stood out most to you, um, whether it be about the interview we did, about you know just the year that PBD Essex had, or even just the recent news of the change in leadership? Just what are everybody's thoughts on PBD Essex in the year that it had? Well, Will and I were at that interview, which was, um, first of all, uh, I think it gave them like, what, two days notice, Will? We did. Come over. So the accessibility was there. And um, so that's- They're um, yes people. They're yes people. Just came in and my, my dog's barking, so he's being removed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah. And, and I think in terms of change of leadership, I think you know more will be revealed, but um, I think the change in leadership wasn't because the museum decided to do everything on Salem. And I'll leave it at that. So. Um, I, I think it's the right direction. I think it's the right direction to incorporate that. Um, did you notice the, the, the new windows that they, you know, the designed windows in some of the buildings they own? So they use oh. on, on the pedestrian mall, just slightly mm -hmm. down, they've opened up a shop and a mm -hmm. small PBD Essex Museum shop. They also have some information. They have some models and clothes about what's going on in the museum. But also, if you notice, and I think some of these folks, John, have been some at your markets, um, some of the things in the windows were all local Salem artisans, which was really nice to see that in their window, highlighting some of their craft. So, yeah. yeah I mean, it's been, it's, I'm really happy that the dialogue and discussions with the museum are more about how to make community engagement work both ways. I, I have been talking to the education department and the marketing department both about how do we how do we do more with community engagement and community engagement doesn't necessarily mean just go to the museum 
and the fact that we're starting yeah. to have those those discussions what the museum does in the museum is fantastic nobody's ever questioned that mm. what's inside the four walls of the museum is amazing they have world-class programming they have world-class exhibits they're really good at what they do inside the museum being a true community partner works both ways and I feel like it's nice that those discussions are starting to happen. And things like the outdoor activations like that are definitely helpful because you're not in the museum. There's, there's an accessibility to that. And the fact that they are incorporating some local artisans and makers is even better. Yeah. You know, our, their relationship with Georgia from Georgia made this, you know, little Georgia, that has been a five, six year relationship. I mean, we brought their friend to a 10 p.m a long time ago. She did an outdoor stand with kid entrepreneurs at the museum a few years ago. Like this is all part of an amazing relationship that's long-term. Um, so it's really nice to see them starting to spread out a little bit beyond their own property. Um, they own so much, it's great, it's great. Like Ropes Mansion, how many people love just going to Ropes? It's a yeah. whole thing, you know? You know, one of the things that, that uh, we should talk about is, so, you know, Trevor Smith, um, who is a curator there, he had an exhibit that never has been seen. It was an interactive exhibit, I think, with, with some music and things like that. that. That was never seen, ever. It was never put out because of COVID. And then my favorite was Where the Questions Live, which was this brilliant exhibit in the Nature Culture Center that was not only just for children, but for adults as well. And, you know, I took my grandchildren there. They were 15. I visited many, many times, completely shut down. I really hope that, I hope that doesn't go away. But, but they lost a lot in terms of what, because an exhibit can take two to three years Minimum. to plan. And then yeah. here you go, you know, because it's either going to go on to somewhere else and, yeah. you know, but... Uh, that, that, that was rough. That was rough to, to, to have that loss. Well, it's also kind of amazing that they put the Witch Trials, I mean, bringing it back to the Witch Trials Museum here, because I think Gwen had something to say too. But um, I just wanted to say was that, I mean, the fact that they put this together in such a short period, like you said, two, three years for an exhibition. I mean, this was together in like nine months, you know, nine months. I think that's how long, right? Well, under nine months anyway within the past year but um it's got like some amazing things in it from you know um an execution warrant to a you know examination documents and some original documents that deal with where the sort of um inception of it all happened which was in the, par the paris home and um yeah so it was it was kind of neat to go through that um, I just wait, did you so, have something to say <laughs> i just think it's so important real quickly that the people of Salem feel like it is our museum. It is something that we share and not that it, that some people think, you know, it's here, but you know, it's not part of Salem anymore. And so this movement to resume, to, to get people to feel like it's our museum again, is so refreshing. Yeah. And, and the, yeah. witch, the, the, the current exhibit on which, and the witchcraft, the witch trials, is part of restoring that that feeling to the people who live here. 
and even just on top of that, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because you've got a whole nother exhibit in there as well, Salem Stories, which mm -hmm. takes the 26 letters of the alphabet and ties mm -hmm. all the 26 different stories of Salem's past that aren't getting as much attention. I don't know. I mean, I started covering Salem in 2014 and it, immediately I was hearing people saying, there's nothing here on Monopoly. There's nothing here on, and now there is, you know? Yeah, How more Salem can you possibly get than actually having a Monopoly game at PBDS? Excuse me. And I mean, I, again, I think the discussions are also heading in the right direction that hopefully you see more of that type of local creative community engagement. Yeah. And we're starting to get, um, you know, I'm a Salem resident um, and I get now connections, which is like, I think it's called connection, pin connection, which yes, is just for residents. And it's like a news newsletter just for mm -hmm. residents mm -hmm. too. And I yeah. always enjoy just going over that and seeing what is inside it. And I think it's a monthly one too. So that's another sort of point to show that they are trying to be more local. Oh yeah. Also, if, if any, if, if people have not seen the fashion exhibit yet um, put up by Petra Slinkard, um, one of the great things right now about the limited numbers is that you really get to have time in the gallery to look at every single thing and to read every single thing. And it's just, a joy to be able to do that. So if you haven't seen that one, go in and see that one too. It's just a really fantastic, fantastic exhibit about women's fashions that I think anybody would, would really like. Yeah, and on that note, I know we were just talking a couple seconds ago on community uh, involvement and things like that. There was also a lot of action on the social justice front this year. For a few months this year, we could reliably expect protests and demonstrations to march through the city every single week seemed for a while every Friday. Uh, and it seemed like every topic um, that had some level of protest that could go with it. But we didn't see this play out any louder than through the Black Lives Matter movement. And to end the year, the city's race equity task force has launched an equity survey. If you haven't had the time yet, um, it runs until January 8th. It's anonymous. It's available in Spanish and in English. So make sure you do it. And on that note, table set. Who wants to speak? I'm taking this. Oh, all right. <laughs> go there ahead. you go. <laughs> I have it takes about five minutes. Go ahead, Ben. You probably mm -hmm. have to. No, I, I was. The, the, we cannot underestimate, no one should underestimate um, the awakening that the summer brought to, and to, to folks who, I don't want to say we're not aware, but who, who were not. Uh, didn't thought it was out something outside of not be, was not related to them, and the Black Lives Matter movement, and it is a movement. Um, the demonstrations, the calling these events and um, tragedies to people's attention, uh, for many of us, many many of us, felt like you know we've been telling you this for generations. We've been saying. It's, this is how it is for 400 years. And finally, finally, people of people, more people began to pay attention. And what's really critical in that paying attention is that it's not treated as a trend. Um, we talked a few months ago about the, the reading groups and the book clubs that grew out of the movement that it's not, it has to go beyond that. It has to, this, this whole sense of this commitment to race equity has to go beyond only 
a book club and has to become part of uh, one's experience and part of one's values. So I don't, I, I think, you know, the summer is over, it's cold and the most of the demonstrations have stepped back into the warmth, but the issue uh, is still there. And the race equity survey that we referred to is a part of addressing that issue for Salem. What really is the experience of people in Salem in terms of race equity? And it's important that folks fill that survey out. It's like asking, just like, it's like going to the small businesses and asking. Yep. And the racial equity justice committee is asking. And from there, your work will be formed. So um, yeah. To, to go I was thinking the point. same thing. Deb, I was thinking the same thing. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Ditto what you said. Yes. And to, to Gwen's point, I mean, just because it's winter, just because it's quiet, it's a great time to pick up a, a book. It's a great time to do some research. It's a great time. Again, if we want to come out of this better, then we have to do the work. And, you know, a lot of people are going to have a lot of time on their hands this winter. Let's, let's, let's continue to do the work and not stop. Um, you know, obviously it's not the headlines every day. Obviously it's, it's, people aren't talking about it as much. It doesn't mean that it's gone away. And that's, there's a lot of people, unfortunately, that want us to go back to the way things were. I think that that's absolute crap <laughs> for, for lack of a better term. Um, I think we can come out of this in a better place um, to Dustin's point earlier in the conversation about the, the Spanish flu and the pandemic. Like we learned lessons, not all of them, but we learned a lot. Um, you know, the, the Spanish flu pandemic brought out the age of theaters. Um, things came out of it. There's no we are gonna do a disservice to all of the pain, suffering and loss if we don't come out of this in a better place. Yeah, I agree. And, and not, to, not to kind of turn kind of a month into an example, because I know that whenever we're talking about, you know, Black Lives Movement or anything like that, whenever you start talking about February as being Black History Month, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that kind of roll their eyes about that. And they're kind of like, okay, mm -hmm. is that the only month of the year you're going to talk about this? But mm -hmm. you are going to have a lot of book lists that are going to be coming out in a few weeks that are going to say, hey, read this book, read this book, read Fred Douglas, read August Wilson. And, you know, especially because you've got August Wilson's uh, Century Cycles all being turned into movies now. So, mm. Gwen's class. Anybody needs a book list, find me. I got list and list and list and list. <laughs> um, and lastly, though, it still isn't really even over yet here at the end of December. There was a lot of news about elections this year. In fact, three were held in Salem. You may not remember that. We had a presidential primary in March, then a state primary in September, and the actual presidential election in November, two of which were held under the pandemic. What did everybody think about that, just as we're wrapping up today? I, I thought it was pretty amazing just how much they, you know, we, we all keep, we, before this session, we had a planning session and we kept saying how well everyone pivoted, pivoted, pivoting. And even John said it earlier and um, just with just everything. I mean, I think it's amazing. I mean, we had 14 days of, of early voting um, in person, early voting and a lot of like changes that happened because of COVID. And I think it just mm -hmm. proved that if you expand access to the ballot box, you're going to have record turnout, just like we did this year and um, I hope that a lot of that stuff stays. Or expands. We also saw that um, it actually runs elections. So we saw it on our city level, we see it on a state level, and we saw it on the national level. 
So that's why I think our democracy held because of who runs our elections and it's not the uh -huh. federal government. So I agree. I, I think states are looking at, uh, you know, maybe doing same day registration. Um, I'll be very interested to see what happens in Georgia. So many some people, the catalyst of some people like Stacey Abrams and what, what mm -hmm. has happened nationally mm -hmm. um, was, you know, when somebody says one person can't make a difference, it doesn't make a difference, man. Yeah, she did. All those many years ago when I was a kid in school and we were required in order to graduate uh, to take a, a civics course. And as I recall, it was a course where you learned not so much politics, but how government worked. And you learned about the constitution and you learned about the uh, branches of government and who did what and how and how it worked. And I think over time, I have a sense over time that in most places, those courses may have gone by the wayside. And I would like if, if people could think about in their school systems, in their, in their communities, revisiting, bringing back civics courses, not from a political point of view, not from a party point of view, but from a how government works, how the United States government works. Because one thing I have become aware of these past few months is so many people who simply do not know how the United States government works. And I think in, in losing that education, losing that course, uh, we've lost an understanding of the way things are supposed to be in a democracy. So that's sort of my plug. Let's bring back civics courses, non-political civics courses. How does the United States government work constitutionally? How does it work? One of the things, actually, she made it to the New York Times today. Um, I don't know if anybody else did, but my sort of go-to person um, that I read every single morning, and I know Gwen does too, is Dr. Heather Richardson. Does anybody read her? Um, she is a historian. She lives actually up here in Maine. Um, she's written a number of books and she teaches at Boston College. Gwen, is it? Or Boston University? Boston College. I'm not sure, but I, yeah. So she started Letters to Americans um, this year, and I read her faithfully every day. As I said, she finally made it to the yeah. New York Times. Yeah. I didn't necessarily love that article because I don't think he was very respectful to her. I don't think he even read one of her letters. But in terms of um, sort of talking about civics, in terms of history, in terms of where we were, where we are, she has kept a lot of us sane through the past Probably since March, I think, is when she started her letters. Well, I think that's yeah. all. The time. Can I say one more? Well, just one, sorry, one thing, yeah, Dustin. I just want to say, I mean, the other thing as far as elections and leadership, like, and this is, this, this can backfire if, if looked at in certain ways, but remember what leadership was like through this. You know, remember what you saw, what, who really had your back, who didn't. Obviously, everybody stumbled. This is, again, unprecedented. Uh, I have seen this test the best. I have seen this crush the best. I have seen people that I thought were extremely strong leaders fall apart because it's just, it's, it's just, it's an ungodly amount of pressure and weight and stress to try to stay ahead of something that changes so constantly. So yeah, sure. I, I would say as we come out of this, just remember 
what your leadership did, what your elected officials did. You know, were they about the community? Were they about coming together? Were they collaboration or were they pulling things apart? You know, we don't need to pull things apart. We can pull things apart when we get back better. We, we really need to kind of, man, like everybody needs to kind of come together and work on these critically important elements. We want better diversity and equity. We want small businesses to survive. I want the creative community to get paid what they should get paid. I want the world to be a better place. But I also remember what I saw through this crisis and who I'll support and who I won't. So it is an election year in Salem, too. Yep. <laughs> I see what every you're doing. Every yeah, single already starting. On. <laughs> so. that's a really good point john thanks for making yes that. well that's all the time that we have for today for alan deb gwen john rebecca and will uh we want to thank you very heavily for joining us on this journey in 2020 we're at the end of the year but we've already got a growing list of topics to dive into in january and we can't wait to discuss them with you the next time things are happening in salem <laughs>